You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge... My decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, Many put their faith in him. I don't need to tell you what remains the leading news story. Uh, The most internet hits are all on COVID-19, the coronavirus. And I'm sure all of us are very much aware there's such a wide range of reactions to this. On, On the one side, you have people who are in panic and fear. Uh, evidence from everything being snatched up from toilet paper to meats to sanitary goods and items. They're they're panicking. They're fearful. Uh, They see this as potentially the end of the world, uh, that if they don't care, care of themselves, they will not survive. On the other extreme, I think you do have some people that are kind of oblivious, complacent. Uh, I don't know if some of this comes with the New England mindset, but the thought that it's, it's nothing worse than a bad cold. Uh, the people are blowing this way out of proportion. And then you have what I would hope would be a more balanced perspective. Uh, we want to be wise and discerning. 
Uh, we want to base any decisions on what is facts and determining facts from fiction. And as I was thinking about that, that same range of reactions is evident when it comes to the question of who is Jesus, which is what the Gospel of John is all about. Who is Jesus? And we see this wide swing of responses. There are those that on one end want to rush in and make him king. Uh, they don't really understand what his teaching is, but they see some of the signs and the miracles, and they're just thinking, this guy will deliver us politically. He will make our world better. He will fix this world. And so they want to rush and make him king. And John, on occasions in his gospel, tell us that Jesus says, basically, this is not the appointed time. Yes, he is a king, but that's a foolish reaction. On the other side, you have in John's gospel, those who fail to grasp who Jesus is. They seem to be oblivious to his teaching. Uh, and in fact, when he begins to say some things more directly, they, they just walk away and say, this is not what we're looking for. And then even within that group that's somewhat oblivious, you even have those who commit something even greater and worse, is that they want to kill him. They just don't want this guy to live any longer. And then in John's gospel, by God's grace, you have those who respond in true knowledge, who confess him as Lord and Savior, and so as we're looking at these I am sayings of Jesus, keep in mind John's whole purpose is stated in John 20, 31, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, that we would walk away with a decision in response that is based on wisdom and the facts. So I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. And we come here to the second I am saying of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And now to consider, what does Jesus mean? And why is this so important? He says that I am the light of the world. And so we're going to consider this from the perspective and angle of three things that appear in this text. Uh, this is an extraordinary claim. Uh, that we must step back and realize that this is an extraordinary claim that Jesus would make here. Uh, and we'll see that he brings in expert witnesses to affirm this claim. And then he will conclude by taking us to examining the heart. And so we move from a claim to witnesses to really what's in your heart as you hear and listen to what Jesus says about who he is. So in John chapter 8, the claim is stated clearly in verse 12. It will repeat, be repeated uh, in this long dialogue that Jesus has. Uh, but let me read verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Now that seems very straightforward. Uh, John's gospel is filled with many contrasts, as we'll see. But why is that such a profound and extraordinary claim? And so we want to be able to hear that in the context in which it would have been interpreted 
by those who first heard this from Jesus's lips. And so we're going to take a look at context, first just from a wide-angle view, Old Testament. Just pause and think for a moment. What statements do we have in the Old Testament that refer to light? And we think of in the Psalms, you have in Psalm 27, the reference that the Lord is my light. So we associate God with light in the Old Testament. With that comes truth, uh, with what is accurate. Psalm 119, 105 says that God's word is a, and you can probably fill this in, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So you move from the concept in the Old Testament, God is light, that his word gives light, gives radiance to the eyes, like Psalm 19 says. And then pause and think for a moment as you read for meditation this morning in Exodus 25 and 27, the view in the tabernacle and later in the temple, uh, that there were these oil lamps that needed to continually be trimmed and kept burning. And the function of that was not merely because you lived in a world where there was no electricity, so not much can get done at night in darkness in the temple, or the tabernacle, but it was a reminder of God's presence, that he himself is light. And so as we think of the temple and the tabernacle, once again, we're reminded of this significant emphasis of God is light. His word is light. His dwelling place is associated with light, not darkness. That God is a God of truth. Then we come to the fact that in the Old Testament, you have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So this is a celebration that God gave to his people to remind them of his faithfulness in the wilderness. So during this period of wandering that God provided for his people. And this was a festival that lasted seven days with a Sabbath rest at the end of it. And it was to always bring the people back to the God who is light was with us in the wilderness. That there was a pillar of cloud and there was a pillar of fire by which he watched over us, protected us, and guided us. So you want to keep that in your thoughts as you consider that Jesus is engaging the Jewish people and at times the Pharisees in this discussion who their Bible is the Old Testament. So when they hear reference to light, this would be what they would be thinking. We, we know light is associated with God. We, we believe that. We've seen it in our history. The other interesting fact is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths had within it the importance of water and light. So if you, if you look through the Old Testament, you see one of the things they're supposed to do during this Feast of Tabernacles was to pour out water. Now, think of how valuable water is, and especially to the ancient people of Israel. It was just a reminder, we, we can pour this out because God will provide. And in fact, the pouring out of the water was a, a symbol of a, the Spirit of God that would come upon his people one day. And then as we've seen, light, a very significant element that will come out. So that's how 
his audience would have heard this reference. That's the luggage, the baggage they would have brought with them to this scene. But notice in verse 12, again, even before he says the light of the world, you have two words that should jump out to us. I am. Very emphatic and strong statement. Jesus does not say, I am one of the lights. This is not a Hindu or Buddhist concept. Uh, and speaking to someone who was a follower of Buddhism, uh, talking about who Jesus was, um, he, he made the statement to me that, well, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus existed, but Jesus was just one form of a Buddha, and every age has a different Buddha that can come. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I am one of many light bearers. I am the light, definite article, the light of the world. But let's go back to just the, uh, the Old Testament concept and context. What would a Hebrew think when they heard the words, I am God? That's a title for God. That's what God told Moses when Moses was saying, who am I going to say sends me? He says, tell them I am. And then you have Isaiah using that same language, clearly delineating a reference to God. So you put those pieces together. This is a claim to deity. This is an extraordinary statement that Jesus is saying here, that I am the light of the world. So that's a very broad concept, kind of a quick overview of the Old Testament. But now you also want to look at the context that's immediately surrounding this text. So one is, it's in the Gospel of John. So not a trick question. What's John's Gospel about? Well, I told you the purpose of this Gospel is to show you that Jesus is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah, the Anointed One. But John also is a Gospel filled with contrast. So he will contrast life and death, and his next biggest contrast is light and darkness. So notice, if you would, look at the prologue, John 1, where this contrast is right up front in his gospel. John 1, and I'll read verses 4 and 5, and then verse 9. John 1, beginning at verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then go down to verse 9. It says, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So the Gospel of John opens with the statement, Jesus Christ is God. He's the light coming into a dark world. John the Baptist clearly understanding, he only bore witness of that light. He was not that light to come. How appropriate in the chorus we just sung, he stepped down into what? Darkness. So you have this vivid contrast between light and darkness, God and this world, between error and what is true, permeating this particular gospel. So that tells us this is a very important theme in John's writing here. But then add to that maybe the more immediate context. So go back to John chapter 8. And Jesus is having this discussion. 
And it mentions in verse 12, he spoke again to the people. So what is going on just around this immediate scene? Well, the immediate scene is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, which we mentioned earlier is all tied around the symbolism of water and light. So if you look at John chapter 8, since you're right there, if you just back up to verse 17 in the previous chapter, uh, John 7, excuse me, and verse 14, it says, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So in the beginning of chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles is here. Uh, Jesus' brothers who are not believers are basically saying to him, if you really want people to believe you, you need to go to this. Jesus is hesitant to go because of the increasing opposition. But he shows up midway through the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's the immediate context. He starts to teach in maybe the porches and things like that of the temple area. Now go to John chapter 8 and verse 20. So in the discussion we're immediately talking about, where Jesus makes this extraordinary claim, you notice in John 8, verse 20, it says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. So Jesus shows up halfway through the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, and towards maybe the very close of it, maybe on the last day, you have this discussion taking place. The reason I'm pointing that out is there are two different Jewish perspectives on what happened on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. One perspective is that on this last day, there was a phenomenal display of lit menorahs uh, and especially put on very high poles. So in other words, in the context of this kind of being the, the ending of this feast where the whole night sky in the temple area is ablaze with torches, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The other perspective is that on the last day, unlike the previous day, there was no lights lit. And that contrast between what they had seen earlier and now the absence of light, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Either way shows you the significance and importance of the timing of this announcement. And I think we need to realize this is what made this an extraordinary claim. Not just that someone would say, I am God, but that he would say, I am the light of the world in this bigger context of all of Scripture and in the immediate timing on the calendar of the Feast of Tabernacles. So at this point, part of this discussion is in this area of the treasury where everyone's coming in, they're, they're going to these little receptacles to put in their offering. Jesus is speaking about being the light of the world. So that is the extraordinary claim. But as you well know, claims are challenged even today. And this significant statement is not going to be left 
unaddressed by the religious leaders and those hearing this. So if you look at verses 13 through 18, we now look at what will be expert witnesses. Uh, and in verse 13, the Pharisees challenge the testimony of Jesus here, one of many times. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, I want you to think about for a moment on what grounds are the Pharisees at this point critical of Jesus' claim, I am the light of the world. Now, they've challenged him on other occasions. We know that this takes place about six months or so before the crucifixion. So we know opposition is getting builder, building greater and greater. But it's very interesting. This is a technicality issue that they're bringing up here. At this point, they're not questioning his signs and miracles, which we saw earlier in John chapter 6. They're questioning the legality of how can we believe your testimony it's not valid. And the word valid means it's not able to stand up in court. And their thought is it can't stand up in court because you're going against the law of Moses. That you're giving testimony about yourself and you can't do that. No one can claim something without some kind of confirming reports to it. And oddly enough, there's another passage in John where, where Jesus recognizes this. He, he's kind of saying, you know, if, if I'm the only one who's saying this, but I'm not verifying it through my miracles, the things I'm doing, you don't, you don't have any right to believe me. But I am verifying it. So let's take a closer look at how Jesus responds to this. And that you see in verses 14 through 18. And Jesus responds by bringing out expert witnesses. Isn't this the thing you tend to hear when you're reading about a case that's being tried in the courts? They, they want to bring witnesses, but you want expert witnesses. You want witnesses who are highly knowledgeable and trained in whatever that field is that you're seeking them to speak on. So look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. A very strong, emphatic statement, for I know. This means I completely comprehend, I completely understand. It's in the perfect tense, which indicates he's referring to from eternity past, this is what I knew. In other words, my being here is knowledge of the mission I am on and that it will be marked by complete and perfect obedience. Jesus never was confused about his own identity. I've heard some liberal theologians try to say when Jesus said to to his disciples and even Peter, who do people say that I am? That he was going through an identity crisis, that, that he was looking for them to tell him he, who he was. What, what an outright lie that is. Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he came. He knew what he was to accomplish. And so Jesus challenges that and speaks of his own assurance, his own witness 
And the word witness there is our root for the word martyr, to, to be completely convinced of the truth. Jesus completely knows and says to them, the problem is you don't know where I have come from. You don't know. Not that he does not know. Look at across the page in your Bibles at John chapter 7, verses 45 through 49, that, that Jesus is, is reminding us through John's writings here, there were others that were seeing what the Pharisees and a majority of the Jews failed to see. Imagine the scene that's mentioned here in John 7, verses 45 through 49. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? So here's an interesting situation. They're concerned about Jesus teaching, saying these things in the synagogues, not in the middle of like a synagogue service, but, but in the outskirts of when this is discussed and things in the temple area, in the, the porches and the places like that. Maybe the equivalent, we might say, of a fellowship hall. You know, where, where people are hanging out after the mess and you're talking about it. So the temple guards, whose job it is to maintain the order of the sanctuary and the synagogue. The Pharisees are like, well, why didn't you just bring them in? Listen to what they say. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean that he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? Notice their shock that, that he's even influencing these temple guards who, who are acknowledging he's making not just extraordinary claims, but, but he's able to prove this by the way in which he speaks, by the things that he does. No wonder many people are responding in faith. But as we return to John chapter 8, look at verses 16 through 18. As Jesus speaks of the witnesses now, he brings in an expert witness, not just himself, but the Father. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself, and my other witness or testimony is the Father who sent me. Jesus reminds us once again that he will completely fulfill all the requirements of the law. Even when it comes down to the very testimony of his extraordinary claim, that will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Remember the issue that the Pharisees started with. This is invalid. This won't hold in a court of law. Jesus says this holds. This holds in the court of heaven. I don't just bear witness of myself. My father is in complete witness with me. So we've been reminded of an extraordinary claim. We've seen expert witnesses that testify to the legitimacy of that claim. And now we come to examining the heart. Because what is really going on here when people, not just then, but even now, do not 
embrace Jesus' definition of who he is. And so now I'll direct your attention to verses 19 through 30. Notice verse 19, they ask, then where is your father? And we see that the attention turns now to what is truly behind your unbelief. Maybe, you know, every year I have to have an echocardiogram, uh, basically a, a slice to look into my heart to see how everything's moving around. Uh, this is basically a spiritual ultrasound here. Jesus cuts through everything and, and gets to the real heart behind this contrast between belief and unbelief. It's not really the lack of evidence. It's not really the technicality that you're going to try to throw at me that I'm only one witness and you just want to be true to the law. You want two witnesses. So I've, I've shown you two witnesses. I've established this. But notice the contrast there as you look at verse 19. Jesus' response between belief and unbelief. You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. What a reminder to us in a pluralistic age that you can't say you love God if you are not clear on the identity of Jesus Christ. That, that, that if you reject Christ, you reject the Father. That there is an inseparable link between understanding the deity of Jesus Christ and the deity of God. Jesus is, is not unclear here. He says, you, you do not know me. And if you don't accept me, you do not know the one who sent me. Look again at verse 21 as he goes on further and says in verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Now we might think, wait a minute, it says they will look for him. But are they looking for him for salvation? Or are they looking for him for all the wrong selfish reasons, motivations, looking for him to maybe kill him, but not looking for him as their savior. What a difference when later in John, he will talk about, I'm going to leave, and you know where I'm going. And, and I will prepare a place for you to join me. Where here, the unbelief is a condition of the heart. Where he says, you, you will die in your sins. Now, once again, they, they do not understand this. Their eyes are not spiritually open. Look again a little further, verses 23 and 24. Jesus continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Think of how many times in this short little conversation Jesus has said to them, you will die in your sins. You, you will die in your unbelief. Jesus is not presenting a whole bunch of options here as to how you can interpret or respond to the issue of who is Jesus. There's two options. You, you either believe that I am who I said I am, or you don't. And when you don't, 
this is the consequence. This is the reality. And I think this paints for us very specifically the, the tremendous offense that unbelief is. It is a rejection. It is basically saying, Jesus, you're lying. It is saying, God, you are lying. Some have put it, it's outright tyranny and rebellion against God. It's us putting our hand in his face saying, just leave me alone. I don't want to hear another word about this. What a, what a way for us to look at unbelief from God's perspective. And you see this continued on as the discussion here goes even further about Jesus saying, you are children of your father. And who's your father? It's Satan. It's not Abraham. Because you're rejecting me. You're rejecting God. But you look at the very end of this first part of this dialogue, and it continues on through chapter 8. But notice verse 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. We have a similar comment made in John chapter 7 even though there was increasing opposition. So when we think of examining the heart, by God's grace, there can be the change in which we respond in believing faith and confidence. Listen to what John said again in the very beginning of his gospel, in John 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John reminds us this is what saving faith looks like. Not just highlights in Jesus' words, this is what unbelief is, but you also want to consider what does saving faith look like? What does genuine faith in Christ Jesus look like? It is transformative, it is life-changing, it brings us into the family of God. There are many things in life that are open to all kinds of opinions and views. Uh, there are other matters, though, that are life and death issues. Um, coronavirus could be one. Other health issues that you may have to decide on or another. But in that grouping, Clearly at the top of all that is the identity of Jesus Christ. That's not open to opinions or speculations. There are only two options, belief and unbelief. C.S. Lewis does an excellent job, I think, of referencing this in Mere Christianity when he says, Jesus does not give you options if you want to believe he's just a great moral teacher. He never gave you that option to say that. He said, you either believe that I am Savior and Lord, or you walk away in unbelief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in a world where there is so much confusion, so much misinformation about so many things, let us be clear on what it means to say you are the light of the world. Let us be clear and what it means to say, I believe you as Lord and Savior. And what it means when someone walks away from that and rejects it. In Christ's name, amen.